Welcome to the Knowledge Nuggets podcast hosted by John Ingram. All right, awesome. So let's see if uh, David there can key up the slides and we'll see what surprise we have in store for us today. So yeah, this is uh, Knowledge Nuggets. I'm your host, John Ingram, John Ingram Knowledge Nuggets. For those of you who may have watched in the past, this is Episode number seven, we launched this idea, I guess, in 2021, right, guys? January. Yeah. It's now April 22nd, 2021. As always, I have no disclosures on any uh, any any topics today or any other day. So our motto at Knowledge Nuggets is, the reason why we have it named this is that you're going to spend a little time and expand your mind. Hopefully, it's just going to be a good, informative, short, sweet, something that you can uh, benefit from. And this week's topic is going to be by Valerudin, also known as Angiomax. So as you know, uh, if you've watched before or not, but if you're wondering, our format is different topic each week. It's actually every other week, but it's going to be something we hope, I hope that you can take home with you and be a better clinician tomorrow. And when you see a, a golden nugget in the right-hand corner of a slide, that's kind of like a take-home slide. Screenshot that, snapshot that on your phone. It's a nice little piece of information you might be able to be used uh, in, in your practice up tomorrow or, or very soon. And it's just a 12 to 15 minute high impactful segment. At the end of that, we always have a surprise, which I call perfusion gem of the week. You never know what you're going to get in a two or three minute segment about something highly interesting and hopefully uh, uh, fun to talk about. After that, we have panel discussion and questions. And of course, uh, now or in the, in the future, if you guys watching this live or in the future, you have any email questions or comments, please reach out to me at john.ingram at perfweb.us. And I do and will respond to everyone who sends me an email through that email address. All right, so what is Bivalorudin or Angiomax? Well, we can define it, and this is a little bit of a take-home slide if you're wondering exactly what it is. Bivalorudin is a specific and reversible Direct thrombin inhibitor. A lot of people like to call them DTIs, direct thrombin inhibitor. It is a synthetic 20-amino acid peptide with the chemical name of, you can feel free to have at that. And that's actually the chemical uh, configuration. Well, defining it further, uh, the active pharmaceutical ingredient is in the form of bivalorudin trifluoroacetate. It is a synthetic congener of the naturally occurring drug hirudin, which I think most people know is found in the saliva of the leech, hirudo medicinalis, okay, Medi medical leeches. It's found in their saliva, and they, one of the reasons why they're able to do what they can do is that as they draw the blood out from your skin, they keep it from clotting. Very wise, very good adaptive uh, animal evolution there. Well, the blood will not clot on them. So it's productive for them to be able to keep the blood anticoagulated on the isolation, on the spot where they're uh, drawing from, and it doesn't clot and it, 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 they are able to retrieve it. So a DTI, uh, it's a DTI that overcomes many limitations seen with indirect thrombin inhibitors such as heparin. It's a potent and highly specific inhibitor of thrombin, hence its name. It inhibits both circulating and clot-bound thrombin. And it also inhibits thrombin-mediated platelet activation. So it's a very nice uh, anticoagulant in, in that regard. 
further defining it, it has a quick onset of action. We're going to talk about that and a short half-life. It's supplied in a sterile white lipolized powder as an off-white color in a single-dose vial. Each vial contains 250 milligrams of bivalorudin, and this is equivalent to 275 milligrams of bivalorudin trifluoroacetate, which is what you actually end up with because it has 125 milligrams of mannitol and sodium hydroxide to adjust the pH to between 5 and 6. When it's reconstituted with sterile water, uh, it is relatively clear, pretty much colorless, sometimes a slightly yellow tint in the, in the solution once you reconstitute it. So if you look at the coagulation cascade, because we're talking about thrombin, we uh, see there you have the intrinsic pathway and the extrinsic pathway, but they come together in the red there at the common pathway. And uh, go ahead for the next slide, Dave, and you'll see there that thrombin, this is what this anticoagulation, the direct thrombin inhibitors, this is where its mode of action is in inhibiting the formation and the continuation of the coagulation cascade right there at the, at the site of activating thrombin. So what about thrombin? Let's talk about that a little bit so we can understand what, what an anti-thrombin, direct thrombin inhibitor is doing. But thrombin and its role in coagulation, it's a serin proteinase that is central to the thrombotic process. As you, see, as you saw there, it's on a central line mainstream to forming a clot. It cleaves fibrinogen into fibrin, and it activates as well as, as cleaving fibrinogen into fibrin. It also activates factor V, 8, and 13, and, it, and so it further stimulates the coagulation process. It has, you know, what they call backfeed or, you know, uh, ramification effects and further stimulates other factors in the coagulation cascade to continue their activation, but it also allows fibrin to develop a cross-linked framework that stabilizes the thrombus. So the fibrin, as you guys know, comes in around the platelets that are being plugged up and forms a heavy-duty meshwork and really stabilizes that thrombus or that clot. So if you can prevent thrombin from forming fibrin into fibrinogen, you don't have a good clot going on at all. So thrombin promotes, go back one second, on that last line there, thrombin, thrombin promotes further thrombin generation and it activates platelets and stimulates aggregation. So if you can, again, stop thrombin from doing that, you have all these benefits of, of stopping what thrombin is trying to do. Okay, Dave? So what is the clinical pharmacology? If you want to know a little more, it's a take-home slide for you here. The mechanism of action, it directly inhibits thrombin by binding both to the catalytic site and to the anion-binding exocyte of the circulating and clot-bound thrombin. So those are the sites on the thrombin where it, where it binds to. The binding of bivalorudin to thrombin is reversible, though, as thrombin slowly cleaves something called the bivalorudin ARG to pro, pro-4 bond. Regardless of what that actually means, and you can read up on it, what happens is the thrombin is basically able to self-recover from its effect that the bivalorudin is having on it. The thrombin is not permanently bound to the bivalorudin, and it works to reduce this bond of bivalorudin that is attached to its activation sites and basically recover itself and become, again, an active thrombin uh, cell again. So now the pharmacokinetics is that bivalorudin is cleared by a combination of renal mechanisms, basically through the, re through the kidneys, 
and, and proteolytic, proteolytic cleavage. So the half-life of, of uh, bivalorudin in a normal functioning uh, renal uh, organ is about 25, uh, about 25 minutes. And a mild renal dysfunction, you know, whatever you define that as, it could be prolonged, maybe like 29 minutes. Moderate renal dysfunction is going to be longer than that, somewhere around 34. But somebody in severe renal dysfunction, it's going to basically more than double the, the half-life of bivalorudin. And this is important because if you're giving somebody bivalorudin and you're going to talk, we're going to look at how you give this, the bivalorudin is going to continually to accumulate if your body is not eliminating it at the expected rate that the dosage was determined to be. So, but once you discontinue and start discontinuing the IV uh, infusion of the bivalorudin, the coagulation times will return to normal in about one hour in a normal functioning renal um, organ uh, patient. So what are the indications for use? Well, it's indicated for use as an anticoagulant in patients. Basically, what it's indicated for is per, uh, PCI, patients going under percutaneous coronary intervention, angioplasty, and stents. Um, it has a provisional, provisional use as a glycoprotein inhibitor, a GPI, which is basically your antiplatelet drugs. It is basically acts as an antiplatelet drug, but it's not considered to be given for that reason. It's only under a provisional usage that you can give it for that reason. So it's indicated for patients at risk, of course, for, for HIT, heparin antibody, and HITTS, and for patients that have that syndrome, and they're undergoing percutaneous uh, intervention, coronary intervention. Bivalorudin is intended for use with aspirin, and all the studies that were done on it were only on patients that were receiving aspirin, and it's all its FDA approval studies. Bivalorudin was given with patients with aspirin. So the contraindications are basically your bleeding indicators for the most part. Anybody with active bleeding, uh, patients that are hypersensitive to bivalorudin, and as far as pregnancy is concerned, it's classified as a category B drug in cases of giving to someone who may be pregnant. And what category B means is that on all the studies on animals, it is not shown to be harmful to the fetus or to the, uh, or to the mother. And uh, so all indications are that you could give it to a pregnant woman and it can only be given to, uh, uh, in pregnancy and, and a severe case. But if you do, it's considered that all indications are uh, that it, it does not cause a problem. So there's side effects. 80% of, of these, if you read them, have some type of bleeding complication. You know, blood in the urine, bleeding from a wound, nosebleed, uh, you know, uh, bleeding gums and all this stuff. Any type of bleeding uh, uh, side effect. But you could also have an allergic reaction like hives or difficulty breathing, swelling of the, swelling of the tongue or throat. Um, you could also have, um, you know, swelling in an arm or leg. Uh, which may mean you have a paradoxic effect where you actually have clotting or problems with vision or speech, which again is probably uh, getting some type of a TIA going on. So uh, these are all mostly obvious that you're going to have uh, aggravate uh, current uh, bleeding situation by giving somebody this type of anticoagulant. So what is the dosage uh, during a, a percutaneous coronary intervention, PCI? Well, it's pretty simple. You basically know the person's kilogram, 
and you give a 0.75 milligrams per kilogram. And for a continuous infusion, because that's how this drug works, you give a bolus and you immediately follow it with a, um, with a continuous infusion, IV infusion. And in the case of a PCI dosage, it's 1.75 milligrams per kilogram per hour. So one thing I found interesting was, and this is more of a, you know, a nursing thing, but I found it interesting that you, you know, you cannot give somebody this continuous IV um, administration of bivalirudin in the same line with some very interesting drugs, because of these drugs, a lot of them are common to the patients that we see. For example, you cannot give it in the same line as amiodarone. You cannot give it in the same line as diazepam, dobutamine, vancomycin streptokinase, and some of those other ones there. And I found that that was interesting because a lot of times these drugs, the ones you can't give it with, are a lot of the ones that you know, a lot of us don't deal with or you've even heard of, but I see here that some of these are pretty common. So you have to watch out if you're supporting a cardiac patient, as, he, as you might be in the, in the path of doing a PCI, that you can't go in the same line as someone getting some of these uh, supportive drugs. So what about cardiopulmonary bypass? So the next few slides I'm going to focus on, you know, some people have done, and you see papers being out there, but a lot of people have no experience with giving uh, a patient going on bypass without any heparin, in fact, just totally with bivalirudin. And, you know, what would I give? What would my dose be? How do I manage it? All these questions you hear. Well, uh, backing up, though, it's primary metabolite, primarily metabolized, by thrombin, by basically the thrombin itself, freeing itself from the active sites and becoming active again, metabolized by the thrombin and by blood proteases. Potential coagulation when the blood stagnates. That's what you have to remember if you're going to put a person on bypass. It's very easy and it doesn't take very long if you have stagnated blood for the blood to, to coagulate. Because remember, it's only got a half-life of 25 minutes, and that thrombin is working very diligently to reinstitute itself as active thrombin. So stagnant blood becomes very concerning when you do a bivalirudin on bypass. So what are some of the places you have to be concerned about? You have to be concerned about your cardiopulmonary bypass filter, the surgical field, cannula tips when you're off bypass, the, uh, the cardiotomy reservoir if you're doing cell saver, okay? All of these things. Uh, so whenever you have stagnant blood, it's, uh, it, the, the pool blood is easily could, could gel in the surgical fields, you know, down into the pericardium and so on, where we always have blood accumulate. Uh, you can have clotting there. Even though you have sufficient levels of bivalirudin anticoagulation, when you have stagnation, you can all actually have clotting right there where the blood is stagnant. So... On, for on-pump procedures, what are you going to do? You're going to draw baseline ACT like you normally would prior to giving the bivalirudin, and you're going to multiply your ACT baseline times two and a half. We're not doing 480 anymore. If you have a baseline ACT of 100, you're going to multiply times two and a half. Your ACT during this case is going to be 250 seconds or whatever 2.5 is. Forget about the 480 that you're all used to with heparin. This is a different whole different scheme now. Your initial dose is one milligram per kilogram bolus. That's very simple. But you then immediately, and this goes to the anesthesiologist, you know, continuous infusion of two and a half milligrams per kilogram per hour. Or I suppose that could be done 
into the pump. But you also are going to put 50 milligrams in your pump prime. Okay? This is a take-home slide. Like I have the golden nugget there for anybody thinking about, can I do a case on divalorune by itself? Also, you have to consider a lower doses in renal, liver, and or significant heart dysfunction, renal failure, liver failure, because it's not going to break down the bivalorudin as rapidly. Also, the note, cell saver or other parts of the circuit where blood is collected but not directly circulating should have citrate added, sodium citrate added, right? You're not going to use heparin. The whole reason that you're using bivalorudin is that you have a hip patient that has a heparin allergy, right? So you can citrate your... Uh, your cell saver blood. Now, what about off-pump? Well, you can do bivalorin off-pump, and it's basically about three-quarters of the dose of an on-pump procedure. If you notice, a minute ago I said your initial dose on-pump was one milligram per kilogram. It's 0.75 bolus for off-pump, and it's 2.5 milligrams per kilogram on on-pump, 1.75 milligrams per kilogram per hour off-pump. So basically three-quarters of the dose, both bolus and infusion rate for off-pump procedures. So you have to think about adjusting, adjusting your dose while you're on bypass. You may. If you have subtherapeutic ACT levels below that two and a half baseline that I mentioned, you're going to have to adjust your effusion rate, and you might up it by 0.25 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram an hour to keep your ACT at your goal. You may just have to give a bolus on pump. You may not have time if your ACT is dropping too low below your target, just upping your infusion rate, well, that's going to take time before you get a higher circulating volume in there. You may have to give a bolus, and you want to think about something between 0.1 and 0.5 milligrams per kilogram as a bolus directly into your pump to keep that AC, get that ACT back up there. What if you have supertherapeutic ACT levels? Your ACT levels are climbing much too high. Well, obviously, you're just going to start lowering your infusion rate. But if you have a more emergent need to remove uh, the anticoagulant effects, okay, ultrafiltration works wonderful with bivalorudin because it does come across the pores of the filter. Mm -hmm. So ultrafiltration, if you start ultrafiltration, you'll really expedite your, your reduction of your bivalorudin levels if you feel they're getting too high. How do you avoid complications on bypass? Another take-home slide if you're, if you're thinking about bypass. You should use closed systems whenever possible to minimize stasis, right? A, uh, a venous reservoir bag is going to be all part of the movement of the circulation a little better than an open reservoir where blood can sit a little bit stagnant at the top and moves a lot more quickly at the lower part of your reservoir. So closed systems are recommended. You need to saline flush the veins. They're talking about up on the table when you do your grafts and you flush the, the, the grafts with blood to test them and stuff like that up at the table. Don't use blood. Use uh, saline because that blood is likely to be static inside the vein for a while. Could clot off your vein graft. They actually recommend low, running low blood levels in your venous reservoir. Um, you're going to have to be judicious about this, but again, if you have a lower level, What's coming in is rapidly being pumped out. You're not going to have stasis in your, in your reservoir. There's more things you have to consider. Give cardioplegia every 15 minutes instead of 20 minutes or longer because you have to keep flushing that cardioplegia line every so often to make patency, to keep it patent or from clotting. 
Uh, any blood-filled recirc lines or any lines in your system that are generally clamped but have blood in them, you need to flash them. You need to open the clamp and flash them mm -hmm. at least every 15 minutes. Avoid stagnation for too long. And also, you shouldn't do hypothermia. Uh, they recommend against that because what you're doing is you're, when you go cold temperature, remember that the, uh, the metabolism of the, of the thrombin itself is working to free itself from the bivalve room. That, the doses that you're given, that infusion, is, is because it, uh, the, the pharmaceutical reaction knows that you're constantly eliminating uh, um, the effectiveness of the bivalve root off of the thrombin. It's freeing itself from the bivalve root. You have to have a constant infusion going. If you cool the patient, that slows that enzymatic process down, and now you're going to have an overabundance of your bivalve root on pump because you cooled. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So now how are you going to come off pump? This is interesting because, you know, while this is reversible, you can't give protamine and reverse it. This is going to be a process before this bivalorudin wears off. There's a half-life and a process that has to happen. So what they recommend is you stop your bivalorudin at least 15 minutes before coming off the end of bypass. You consider ultrafiltrating 30 to 60 minutes prior to coming off bypass to remove some of that excess bivalorudin. Now, you have to be very careful. You have to keep monitoring your ACTs here. It's not just time to, hey, let's get rid of all the bivalorudin, but you're trying to work yourself to more of a minimal standpoint so when you come off, you've got less for the body to take care of on its own. You're still on pump. You can do a few things like ultrafiltrating for one thing. Mm -hmm. But once you're off bypass, they recommend that you take that arterial, arterial cannula out of the aorta and move it over to the atrium or just give blood through the, through the venous line, I suppose. But you do not want to have, mm. you know, 10 minutes go by with the arterial cannula in and, oh, give 100 like we all hear all the time. And meanwhile, the arterial cannula has clots in it, and now you've just stroked the patient. If you're giving up the right atrium through the venous line, if you have that ability, or move the arterial cannula to the right atrium, and that happens, well, at least the clots are going into the pulmonary system where largely they can be filtered out and, and trapped, and it's not going to the brain. You have to consider these things. Um, with the stagnation, you always have to be very con cognizant of it. So you continue your ultrafiltration, as I said, but actively keep monitoring your ACTs that you don't get your ACTs too low. If you need a rescue option, low-dose recombinant activated factor 7 has been used as a potential rescue option. You get yourself into a bleeding situation. You have too much bivalorudin. You're off pump. You're bleeding. What are you going to try to do? You can try to get some factor 7. John, if I can interrupt you for one second. Um, I see that we're supposed to stop the infusion 15 to 60 minutes. That's a huge time range. How are we deciding? Are we, is it just by running your ACTs? How low are you allowing the ACTs to get below two and a half baseline? Yeah, I, I was going to stop and comment about that line, and I started to keep going because that's a real wild one. I mean, that's a big window of time. I personally haven't pumped a case like this, and my, my, my feeling is that this is something that, that people must gain with experience. I certainly would, would, would be pretty uh, perplexed if I stopped the bivalorudin thinking we were going to come off in an hour. And then, um, you know, it was longer than that. So I think I would start with the 15 minutes and gain experience mm -hmm. with, uh, with what you know at your institution.
But yes, I mean, if you have a very high ACT, if you're far and above that two and a half uh, times your baseline, I suppose you could say, well, you know, this case, maybe I'll, I'll stop at 30 minutes before we come off and I'll keep watching my ACT and see. And, you know, unfortunately, I don't have a good slide here where I can tell you, you know, this is the range plus or minus. Maybe we have a caller or a viewer that has a lot of experience with doing this and see what they do. Uh, because normally you want your ACT within a range, right? And yeah. you really don't have that pinned down here on this on this presentation. And I didn't find that uh, anywhere when I researched this. But um, you know, I think that you uh, you just have to gain that with experience. Would be my would be my guess. But somebody might could could call in and give us some uh, some better education on that. Yeah. Um, if anyone out there does have experience uh, using this uh, and has some comments about. Uh, gauging, you know, when to stop the infusion or if that's just something that is patient dependent and you sort of just get a feel for it, um, please let us know. Please call in. Um, David, if you could throw up the call-in number so that they can see that and maybe somebody will call in and answer that um, question for us. Sorry you know, to Tim, I think that, you know, if it was me, it says there, stop by Val Rudin, I think maybe uh, you, you, you cut it by half or something, you know what I mean? You start, you start turning it down <laughs> before you really have the confidence and experience of uh, turning it completely off. And then I, I think, um, you know, no, there's no substitute for experience, but uh, um, I'd be interested to know if, if somebody has experience with this. I personally haven't done a case, and I don't think I've seen a case done strictly with by Val Rudin. Have you? Yeah. No, I have not. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I'm glad I found the guidelines, at least, that, uh, that apparently there's people that have done it and have figured out. Uh, there's a lot to consider with the stagnation. It's, it apparently is, is not very uh, forgiving mm -hmm. for very long of uh, maybe just uh, maybe 5, 10, 15 minutes at the most of blood being stagnant that the, uh, that the uh, clotting can, can start to happen you know, wherever, wherever you're having stagnation. So it's pretty... Um, I guess you got to be pretty on top of your all aspects of your circuit and cannulas and whatnot, and even in the surgical field. Well, yeah, that's they, what I was going to say. Even in the surgical there. field where we have very little control over that, but that's definitely something to get used to. And I wonder if rather than really trying to infuse, uh, you know, once you come off pump and you've infused the blood that you need to, I wonder if it isn't just better take that cannula out and just send your volume over to the cell saver. It sounds like uh, really a lot to keep up with. It sounds kind of crazy, actually. Um, yeah. It sounds like, you know, you might want to come off pump and just go right into sort of tanking up the patient yes. uh, pretty well and working with the anesthesiologist, maybe leave the patient a little bit dilated mm -hmm. and then tanking them up, getting a lot of your pump blood in, getting those cannulas out. And then, and then go with your cell saver and, and your, your, you tank up the patient somewhat and let the anesthesiologist then sort of manage the uh, pressors. Um, hopefully, you know, I, I think you have to, this is not something that too many of us know, know uh, a lot about and have a lot of, lot of experience doing that. Yeah. I don't know anybody that does. It'd be interesting to see. But. Well, we do have our call-in number up. Again, we invite you to um, call in and comment and uh, let us know. Uh, your experiences with Angiomax, if you have any um, additional guidelines or tips on how to manage this, um, I think it's uh, very interesting. We do have Jeff uh, commenting on uh, YouTube. 
that he, he did use it once uh, for open heart surgery about 15 years ago, but the patient bled and bled and bled. So that was his experience with it. And Joe was asking a little bit about um, if it was, uh, if ultrafiltration would help. And yes, you did co cover that, that, you know, you can use that to help control your ACT, to lower your ACT if it's starting to get um, out of control there. So, wow, that was a great topic, John. Thank you. It it, um, it really comes across uh, really comes across the ultrafiltration uh, pores, and so that is a pretty um, a pretty aggressive way to do it. And, and they recommend that if you get you know too much on mm -hmm. on board. And I I think again, you know, you, you might have to be careful that you don't overdo that uh, because it sounded like from the research that I did that that you can um, you can remove some some pretty significant amount of by of Alrude through that ultrafiltrator. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, some interesting things to think about there. Yeah, I mean, even just thinking about the cardioplegia, you know, really, you're really going to have to uh, be staying on top of that, hoping your surgeon is uh, sewing quickly so that you're able to give your redose amount if needed, you know, really uh, every 15 minutes. And even, you know, I started thinking about for those folks that use Del Nido, you know, you're giving that initial dose and then the blood's just sitting there in your cardioplegia circuit. So uh, you'd have to definitely think about that too if you, um, you know, want to keep it open in case you need to uh, give another dose later on. You know, I know that's not that common, but sometimes you get into some of these complicated procedures. They go a little bit longer than that recommended, you know, 60 to to 80 minutes and you might have to give a redose. I know I've done it before for sure. All of your four to one uh, blood cardioplegia systems, you give the dose and it's usually what I think most people are 20 minutes dose, you know, thereabouts, it depends. But, uh, you know, they don't recommend that it sits for that long. They, yeah. they, they, they say that, you know, you're pushing the envelope at 15 minutes and if you have nowhere to, you know, push that blood through the through the through the circuit and the surgeon's yeah. not ready for it. I guess you're gonna uh, flow. Uh, you know, you have to flow several hundred cc's to get it yeah. from the beginning of the. You know, from where you're taking it from on your oxygen through all of your your cooling system and up to the table mm -hmm. uh, to flush it. I, I, I know. Are you flushing it into a bowl and suctioning it back to the cell saver? I, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I don't know. I don't know. Huh? You wouldn't want to lose all that blood. It's it's quite a bit of blood, right? Yeah, that's so. quite a bit of blood. Huh. Okay. All right. Well, oh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I think you were getting to the, the gym of the week. Which gym is... of the week might be coming up. I think there we go. So what All do we right. do with the gym of the week? Anybody who hasn't seen before is surprised. You never know what you're going to get. It could be um, anything that's uh, that I come up with, anything that pops into my brain. It could be a, a perfusion of medical trivia question or point of trivia. It could be, you know, how to conduct an interview nowadays, an online virtual interview. 10 tips to being successful. I could post an interesting job post that's out there that we could talk about that people might be interested. It could be something like a product recall, something in the Perfusion News. And by the way, the next one is our Perfusion, Perfusion Week is coming up in May. Right. So I may find something interesting there to pull from in the next couple of sessions. I could take a famous quote and we could talk about the implications of, uh, of a very uh, poignant quote that someone has made, which we did about a month ago, or I could talk about an upcoming uh, perfusion conference, like the New Orleans conference. But this week's gem of the week is going to be, can you really die of a broken heart? Ah. And the question, the answer is yes. 
you can die of a broken heart, and here's how. Well, uh, there's many examples of it, but um, when Carrie Fisher died uh, in the late 2016, the film world went into a collective mourning. And um, try going back there and stopping that slide there. I'm not sure what happened. So the grief uh, was, was compounded the next day when her mother, Debbie Reynolds, suddenly died, who was basically relatively healthy. And for many, it was, it was a simple fact that, um, that she was just in so much emotional turmoil and grief that um, she just, you know, it was a very sad situation. But the very next day after her daughter dies, she dies, you know. And so what is the, the likelihood of that? And so we're talking about dying from an emotionally distraught, you know, as you talk about in your relationships, you know, I have a broken heart. We're talking about an emotional situation, not a physical disease, but it, it manifests itself. And so what we know, this is Dr. Stamp, an Australian cardiologist who was interviewed on this topic at one point and wrote an article. And, and, when, and when he was interviewed, this is what he said. He said, well, what we know is that for some people, the stress of losing a loved one or any kind of stressful event in your life, for example, you know, a divorce or, or, or getting bad news about terminal cancer. I mean, there's a number of things that can precipitate this. And it does precipitate a whole bunch of reactions in the physical body as well as in your mind that can and do cause disease and sometimes can cause someone to pass away. A quote from Dr. Stamp, an Australian, a famous Australian cardiologist, said that wow. about this. So then... Um, while the stress of grief may bring on general health impacts, there's a legitimate and specific medical condition, and this is called Takatsubo cardiomyopathy. Takatsubo is a Japanese word because it was discovered and described by a Japanese physician not too many years ago. So it's also known as, but that's the formal medical name for this, Takatsubo cardiomyopathy is dying of a broken heart or heartbreak syndrome. Uh, for, for the layman, let's say. But wow. this is dying of a broken heart, but it is incredibly rare. Huh. Wow, that is so, so interesting. Yeah, we're going to look at this. So what happens, and here's Dr. Stamp again in this research paper that I, that I, that I, uh, that I read about on this and some others, but uh, what happens is in an acutely stressful event, there's a massive rush of adrenaline, and it causes something similar to a heart attack. When it comes to Takatsubo, we do actually see all the tests, and he's talking about the, uh, you know, the EKG and the echo and all the, the cardiac tests, that point to somebody having a heart attack. But looking physically at an image of their heart, what you see is normal coronary arteries, but then you see this big, blown-out heart. Now, he's kind of talking to the layman here, so we're going to look at it a little bit more uh, medically correct in the upcoming slides. And here you go. So you have a normal heart on the left. And basically, this is a manifestation, uh, Tammy, of, of the left ventricle. So you see the normal heart there on the left, the normal ventricular size. And somebody who is suffering this severe emotional uh, condition, the shape of the left ventricle actually balloons out and becomes enlarged. Now, we're talking about healthy people, 20, 30, 40-year-old people, any age, that does not have a heart condition. They suddenly develop this within a few days or so after this severe emotional event that they're, that they're going through. And the, the, what the, the Japanese physician who described this syndrome, when he saw this on the uh, echocardiography, said, wow, that ventricle 
is ballooned out. It looks like what they have in Japan, something called an octopus trap or an octopus pot. It's shaped like what they have over there, something called an octopus pot. Not sure what, what that is. I think it's a particular type of pot they use for plants and so on. But anyway, um, he, he described it, and that's what takatsubo means, is octopus trap. And it's shaped like that for your left ventricle. And this is diagnosed on echo. Somebody who has broken heart syndrome, their symptoms are diagnosed on echo, and the shape of the left ventricle will be abnormally ballooned out like this and contracting relatively poorly. So can you die of a broken heart? Well, if surging stress hormones flood the heart and stop the left ventricle from contracting normally, it mimics a heart attack with chest pains and shortness of breath and often can be misdiagnosed. Patients are not having necessarily a heart attack. Um, but most patients recover within a couple months. The, the situation subsides, their emotional situation you know, begins to improve. But one in five people, Tammy, actually can die of this broken wow. heart syndrome. They have it severe enough. That's absolutely unbelievable. I can't yeah, believe so, it. So um, this mythology that you can die of a broken heart comes from somewhere, and we've often thought of it as folklore, but it is a real physiology. Dr. Stamp quoting there again. Hmm. Broken heart syndrome is also known as stress-induced cardiomyopathy or apic apical ballooning syndrome. You might hear it called that. So here you go, another little graphic from another article that I found. I know it's a little bit of a repeat, but here you have um, the temporary heart condition after an intense emotional, physical, emotional event. And you see normal ventricle and ballooned out uh, ventricle. And I'll, I'll state one thing here, and that is that uh, women are nine times more likely to have this occur to them than are men. But make no mistake about it, men also can do it and have had this syndrome. Wow. Um, it is probably, you know, heavily hormonal-based, but this is an emotional condition. So can you really die of a broken heart? Well, it's rare, but believe it or not, we have approximately 200,000 cases per year wow. in the United States. And it requires lab testing and really imaging in order to diagnose it correctly. The syndrome can last and, and linger for several weeks or months, slowly getting better over time, usually, is what happens. Wow. Um, what are the symptoms? Sudden onset of chest pain, shortness of breath, palpitations, nausea, vomiting. And Tammy, aren't those all exactly the same yeah. thing you see when you're having an MI? Yeah. Well, the treatments are uh, ACE inhibitors. Um, they're basically going to help you reduce your blood pressure so the left ventricle is not working as hard against as high of a, a blood pressure. Beta blockers, you know, you have this huge adrenaline rush. Your heart rate is probably up. You know, your beta blockers are going to slow your heart rate. So you're going to, you know, try to decrease some of that uh, tacky rhythms that you have going on. And then anticoagulants may be given for a short period of time, you know, because if you have a ballooning ventricle, you may have some stag uh, stagnation in the, in the apex of the ventricle. You could have a, a risk of a stroke. So sometimes they will give you these three things where you have a, a, a decrease your chance of, of having a stroke and a clot uh, eject from your LV. So um, there you go. So if you guys have any questions, comments, email me at this uh, uh, email that I mentioned earlier. I will respond to anyone who sends me an email there. And if you have any suggestions for an upcoming show, love to hear from you that on as well. So thank you guys so much for listening. I think we're ready for our panel discussion on Bivalorudin or Can You Really Die of a Broken Heart? 
Yeah, that, those were great talks, and I especially like the gym of the week. That was really, really interesting because, of course, many of us have heard of dying of a broken heart. You even read about those stories. Uh, I didn't realize that Carrie Fisher and her mother died so close together. I remember it being close, but I didn't realize it was that close. Um, but, you know, you read about those human interest stories where, uh, you know, people who've been married for 50 years or, or more and, and, you know, one of the uh, partners dies and shortly thereafter the other partner dies too and everyone, you know, likes to believe it's because they were so lonely and, and died of a broken heart that they lost their, their life partner and their soulmate. So that's really interesting. I, you know, it makes sense that it's a stress-induced injury because we know stress can play such havoc on our entire body. I mean, you know, that's a, a real interest of mine. And um, it really is, uh, you know, that, that's not the kind of stress that I typically talk about, the chronic stress, the stressors in our lives that we don't find an outlet for. But I suppose some of the same techniques could be applied to these people who are suffering these these, uh, you know, very traumatic um, events, probably often unexpected, is, you know, really trying to uh, incorporate some of those coping mechanisms, you know, whether it be um, support system or uh, finding a physical outlet, uh, a, you know, running or exercising or, or even painting, you know, depending on if you want to go the more adrenaline rush kind of uh, stress reliever, or if you'd uh, prefer the meditation, calm your mind, you know, uh, nature walks, painting, reading, those sorts of things. But, you know, uh, those, it seems like probably the people who get better um, either had less of a stress reaction, had a healthy heart to start with, perhaps less of a stress reaction, or uh, indeed did have some of the, the coping mechanisms because, of course, you know, a sudden death or a death of a loved one, that, that's going to take a very long time to get over, usually more than a few months. And so just already start seeing recovery then seems like that those people must have had, uh, you know, some, some different um, situation either in how they dealt with it or how their heart started out, you know, initially. I think this is, um, you make a good point about, you know, daily stress, the stress of a very busy you know, multitasking uh, person who's, who's got a million things on their plate. They wake up in the morning, they're running 80 miles an hour from morning to night. They're doing a million things. They've got a million things to think about and do it. And that's sort of your, you know, your, your young professional, you know, stress, uh, your, 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 your yuppie stress, your, your person who's got, you know, everything going on. Or maybe it's just a, 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 a not even professional life. Maybe you're, you're raising uh, kids and you've just got a million and one things to take care of all the time. So that's an ongoing stress that's sort of an active everyday thing that I think maybe, you know, exercise, diet, mm -hmm. uh, yoga, meditation, things like that. If you could find an hour of the day to do that, you're managing your ongoing stress. This is a sudden, mm -hmm. devastating, never saw it coming, uh, you know, overwhelming, uh, uh, emotional, you know, just you know, a sudden death in the family from something was totally unexpected, mm -hmm. death of a child, um, you know, uh, whatever. But it could be anything that was just so, so difficult for you to, to, to get your arms around. And you get into this deep plunge of an emotional feeling. And I don't know if it's ever happened to you. It's happened to me that I've had such a deep emotional catastrophic event that I, I felt like I felt something 
physical in, in, yes. my, in my heart, in my chest. Yes, uh, I, definitely. Yeah. I, I've experienced that once before. And, and um, I, you know, knowing what I know now, I definitely must have had, you know, uh, some kind of uh, incident going on with the rush of hormones and everything going to my heart. But at the time, you know, uh, you uh, maybe if you didn't know anything about it, because I certainly didn't know it was an actual, real uh, physiologic thing going on, I, uh, you know, thought I was inducing some sort of, like, anxiety attack or something, you know. Um, but, yeah, it's a, it, was, it was very real. It was very uncomfortable. It was definitely... Um, uh, a real pain, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in my chest that I felt. So, yeah, and it's, nausea, uh, too, actually, now that yeah, I think you about didn't, it. You didn't go into uh, a ballooning of your left ventricle, but you had the initial surge mm -hmm. of this overwhelming emotion, overwhelming adrenaline. And I think it's more than just adrenaline. It's probably a multitude of other yeah. hormones. And just, uh, you know, what are what are our, our, our psychological and emotional emotions anyway? What are they? We don't. We really can't put a tangible thing on no. them, but but they we feel them. They do something to us physically, which is why we cry and why we collapse and why we come to our knees and and yell out and all these things are you know emotional is powerful. And at some point, if it's deep enough, sudden enough, and overwhelming enough, you're going to have physical manifestations. Now you probably just had it for a minute, an hour, maybe even a day. But people that go through it and and stay in that state for several days or a week. It, it, it will start to have a chronic effect on their heart where this is what can happen. Like if it did say it was rare, um, and even people that do have it emotionally, you know, get a little better and a little better with time. Maybe they're, they're able to, you know, digest things over time. So two or three months, something like that, it, it, it gets less and less. And their heart actually goes back to normal, and they have no, no permanent effect from this. But people who don't uh, or the emotional devastation continues to be so overwhelming they might just die in a day or two or in a week and as yeah. you said you know people that have been married 40 50 years the percentage of the of the one who dies and the other one dying within 12 months is incredibly high yeah if, and normally that that person wasn't going to die uh otherwise if the other one had lived the likelihood they wouldn't have anything wrong with them or yeah. very little wrong with that's them, right? usually what and you all, hear is that they, they also you know that, so yeah usually in those stories you hear that the other person uh, you know, didn't really have any uh, uh, illness. They might have had chronic illnesses, but nothing that was, uh, you know, with an impending uh, death that was, uh, you know, just, just around the corner. So that, that people are always very shocked when those kinds of things happen. So Joe is just uh, jumping back into the discussion here, and he, I guess he missed uh, your gem of the week. So, uh, we, yes, Joe, we are talking about the, um, the broken heart syndrome and uh, he commented that uh, the other person that they lost was the person living's purpose for living. You know, mm -hmm. I, probably when you've been together that long, you, you are very, uh, you know, your, your, uh, your dependency on each other is, is very, very high. I mean, you know, uh, most of us aren't with people quite that long. I mean, think about when you're a child and how dependent you are on your your parents, they, you know, provide your, your home and, and, and guide your life and all of those sorts of things. And imagine then doing that as an adult, but for, you know, many decades longer, uh, I imagine it is just completely um, uh, devastating. Your entire world turned upside down for sure. 
Yeah, I don't want to um, give the audience the, the, the impression that people who lose a loved one and they're elderly and they die within 12 months have died of a broken heart. Right. They've died of the loss of the willingness to live. They yeah. no longer have the emotional will to live. And that mm -hmm. is something different than this. But, uh, but it would be interesting to know, you know, they still have to die from something. You know, they have to die from a failure of, of something, that, you know, to, to oxygenate the brain. And, they, and so I wonder how many people have looked into what physically really uh, happens to these people who lose their will to live. I don't know how much percentage of those would be yeah. this particular syndrome. Uh, I have a feeling maybe, maybe not quite that many. Um, the, uh, but that would be an interesting topic for another day as well. But I don't want to leave the impression that, you know, just because you lose a loved one, you die 10 months later. Right. This is what happened to you. It probably is extremely rare. Uh, and, and this, I think, if, you're, if you pass away from this, it's probably in a fairly short period of time. Like like weeks to several months. I see. Because you're basically gone into a pretty severe left ventricular failure, and you probably continue to get worse because your emotional state, rather than getting better and you starting to get better from this, you probably continue to get worse. Yeah, uh, Joe's commenting here. I'm trying to get uh, figure out what he's talking about. I think he's uh, asking us to. Uh, he's recommending a book. We're getting kind of deep here. Um, it's Man's Search for Meaning by uh, Viktor Frankl. So I guess he's uh, recommending that for our, our uh, reading time, John, so that we can uh, get caught up on what we're talking about here. Um, thank you, Joe, and we'll, we will keep that in mind. <laughs> um, yeah, well, um, I, I guess we're not going to have any callers call in about either broken heart syndrome or uh, Angiomax, or their experience with using Angiomax, um, which is unfortunate because this was supposed to be the Tammy Sparacino, oh wow, Tammy Sparacino Journal Club Casino, um, and we were going to spin for a winner. We did that um, uh, for the spring conference, and we had a couple winners, but this was going to be the real inaugural first time um, so uh, maybe we can get somebody to call in, even if they are um, have already called in before, so we can get this uh, done. Oh, look, we have a uh, caller. <laughs> well, so, uh, okay, that caller, I got something I can tell you. Okay. Uh, yeah, but something even better coming for future, for future Demis uh, Paracino Journal Club Casino Wheel. We have some additional perfusion products and T-shirts and sweatshirts and hats that were donated that are on the way and shipping now. So next time we have this, there's going to be uh, real uh, sweatshirts, T-shirts, and hats as, as a really cool design. Oh, You'll have that's to see great. It. That's great. Well, that is definitely something to look forward to. So do we have a caller? Yes, Joe. Joe, is that you? Well, Joe called in, but I, I called in, too. Oh, I, Jeff. oh Jeff. Oh, sorry. I yeah, couldn't hear yeah, you. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for uh, calling Jeff's in. Jeff's a big on the show now. That's great. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for calling. I'm glad I'm not talking out into the void out there, just John and I, uh, with our own musings yeah. about broken heart syndrome. <laughs> okay, did you have a question or a comment? Hey, so, um, you know, I, I, I didn't know if anyone had experience or John has seen this because um, seems like he does a lot of ECMO down in Tampa. The use of um, 
of uh, Angiomax in, in ECMO. Yeah. Like routine use of it, not just in, in face of like uh, a patient that develops hit on ECMO, but um, just routine use of it in, in ECMO compared to heparin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to talk about it. Yeah, on ECMO, and I decided to, to go and do something. We, we do a lot of ECMO yeah. talks on the show, so I decided to talk about it on, on podcast. But you actually are seeing it. It's not, un, not uncommon on ECMO. Uh, um, it's not uncommon on ECMO. I know places that do strictly angiomax for their ECMO. And basically, you, you know, you want to start off with, a, with an infusion and, and get your uh, PTT. You want to use your PTT. And, and do your, um, you know, one and a half times times baseline range of 40 to 60 or something like that, whatever your, your 50 to 70, 40 to 60 range, what your institution likes to use. And then just keep your rate. And, and once you find that sweet spot with Angiomax, you'll find that it keeps you right on the rails. People love it. it, it you're not swinging up and down like you do with heparin. You're not getting heparin resistance. You don't have... The, the, the thrombocytopenia that you have with Efren, um, you know, the, the big downside is you, you can't reverse it, but it, half-life is, is 25 minutes. So once you get your PTT right where you want it and you have that infusion rate uh, set, I bet you leave it there for days on end without having to adjust it. So Sean, people love it for that on end. Let me interrupt for just a second. I think we're getting feedback uh, from your viewing the show, Jeff. If you wouldn't mind turning down your volume while you're while you're on yeah, the call. I just, I just, uh, oh, wait, I'm sorry. Could you repeat that? I kind of I missed what you I said. Just, there. No, I just muted my computer because I couldn't hear it myself. Oh, yeah, it. yeah. So, okay. Uh, so, did John answer your question? He was talking about, you know, uh, relative management of it. it. It really, I guess, John, you were yeah. saying stay stable um, once you find your sweet spot. Yeah, I mean, I've never used it. I mean, we thought about using it in the past for him. We ended up, due to the cost of it, we ended up just using our gadgetband and had pretty good success using that. Um, so, I don't know, I just wanted to see what, uh, what people were doing. Like, I know specialty care, um, they seem to use a lot on lot their accounts. I don't work for specialty care, but that's mm -hmm. what I've been told or whatever. So, I was just, I didn't know. Yeah. <clears throat> I just what some of the feedback was on it. Well, and John, do you have any experience with a gadgetband uh, for ECMO? Um, not that I can recall, but mm -hmm. I can tell you that the cost of these DTIs is pretty earth-shattering. Yeah, especially <laughs> I mean, uh, in comparison to the, heparin, the, the right? Cost of, I, 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 yeah, I was hearing the number one time, but I don't know, Jeff, do you know what the cost is? It's it's in the $1,000 range for a single dose, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I don't remember what the cost is. I know it's just pretty up there, especially if you're going to use it. Like they, you know, on a BBF location, run it for you know weeks on end or whatever. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. I don't remember what the cost. I don't remember what the cost was. I know Aldeca being it was much cheaper. That's one of the we. Uh, that's the DTI we use and stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, <clears throat> thank you for calling in, Jeff. I appreciate that, uh, John. So glad you had uh, some experience with that to be able to share with Jeff. 